Well, good morning. I want to welcome you here this morning. We're going to receive communion this morning. I want to welcome those that are joining us live stream. Now, if you want to grab a little bit of bread and juice there at home, that would be great. For the rest of us here, I'd like to just read a little bit from a devotional Patty and I have been reading here through the Advent season, the Christmas season. It says, Our Savior is unlike any other. His mission was not about power and prestige, but about good news and freedom for those in need. And his method was unexpected and unprecedented. As a matter of fact, as A.W. Tozer put it, this is the part I wanted you to hear, salvation was bought not by Jesus' fist, but by his nail-pierced hands. Not by muscle, but by love. Not by vengeance, but by forgiveness. Not by force, but by sacrifice. Isn't that beautiful? You know, so often we can get frustrated with the way things are going in life. You know, we want to just take things in our hands and control things. And yet we recognize that there's so much more going on around us. We really do need God's amazing grace. And his method is so unlike human method, right? Laying down our lives, loving, forgiving. Those are all different ideas, aren't they not? For I received from the Lord, but I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we're going to take this bread. And Lord, we thank you. It represents your broken body, that that you gave up yourself as a sacrifice that we might enjoy forgiveness of sins and eternal life. You died in our place. You are our substitute. We thank you for that this morning. And we pray right now that the covenant that we've entered into with you, this relationship that we have with you, that the benefits that you've brought to us, even this morning as we renew our covenant with you, we remind ourselves of your love for us. Lord, we want to offer our lives and our love to you. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's eat this bread. The Apostle Paul said it to the Corinthians in the same way after supper. He took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so, Father, I thank you that you're coming again. I thank you that our hope, Lord, is not in this world. It's not to make us irresponsible. We recognize you want us to be good stewards. You want us to be responsible, but our ultimate hope is found in you. Our eyes are upon you. We need your wisdom. We need your strength in these days, Father. We need your provision. And now, Lord, we pray that every possible benefit that you have accrued for us on Calvary's cross, from the forgiveness of our sins to the healing of our afflicted bodies, Lord, we pray today that you would Respond to our need right now, Lord, and bring grace and healing and restoration in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's drink together. We'll just take these little cups, and uh, if you wouldn't mind just throwing them in the, uh, the little container on the way out, that'd be great. And also, I want to just thank those last week who filled out the Connect cards. Thank you so much. For you that did not do that yet, please just take a moment right now, if you haven't done it, 
Even though we may think we know all of your information, I've discovered sometimes we don't have all your information, and that'll be a great help to our bookkeeper. And also, Patty and I, we're going to send Christmas cards out starting next week. So we really need your updated information. So if you'd fill that out and drop it off in the little container on your way out today, that'd be awesome. Appreciate that. For you online, if you'd send it through your uh, contact there on the computer, it says connect. If you'd fill that information out, all updated information, we'd appreciate that. Why don't we stand this morning? We're going to go to the Lord in prayer. And we're going to look at the book of Matthew. We're going to look at the Christmas story today. I'm going to share for the next couple of weeks anyways along this theme. So Father, we thank you this morning that you're an amazing Father. As we're going to hear today, that you provide all that we have need of. And even before we call out to you, Father, you know what's about to transpire. And so I pray that you'd go before us, that you watch over us. Lord, as we're going to hear today, that you walk with us and you experience what we experience. You understand Uh, what we're walking through right now. I pray today that you would deeply encourage us. I pray today that your spirit would come and fill us. I ask, Father, that we would encounter you and your grace and love today in a very profound and life-transforming way. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I know in our lives uh, there's a lot of challenges. There's trials, tests, I'm not talking about exams. I'm talking about life tests, crisis, disappointment, heartbreak, sometimes out of rejection. There's many other sorrows that come into the human life, and we've all at times have experienced different things. And sometimes these things cause us to ask this very interesting question. And, and, I, and I know people ask it all the time. If God is so loving and good, why this loss? Why did God take this person from me? You know, or why did I have to go through this accident? Or why do I live with this pain? And why is there this struggle in my life? Maybe an emotional struggle or something I just can't seem to, you know, get past. These are all good questions. And it's the why question again. I'm, I always say it's probably better to ask a how or a what question. But if you're going to ask the why question, this is what happens. We, we kind of question God's goodness sometimes and his love for us. We wonder, you know, if God really loved me, why would he let this happen to me? And if you're an atheist, you'd just answer very cynically and say that's because there's no God. But I believe there's a totally different response to this. I I really do. I I, I believe the Christmas story is God's answer to that question. There's another way to deal with the human condition. And what's that, you'd say? That we can discover that God is sufficient for us in our darkest moments. That God is actually there. That's the part I love. Uh, that God experiences the pain with us. And then he moves to bring what we call redemption to our situations. He's the only person I know that can take what was meant for evil and use it for good. He's the only one that can do that. He somehow transforms human evil. He somehow utilizes all the things that we do on our planet that mess things up. And he can transform that thing and bring it around. You know, the greatest evil that ever happened on planet Earth was the fact that we crucified an innocent person the one who came from heaven, who lived a sinless life, the one who gave himself for us, literally laid down his life. It says evil men crucified him, but God used that act of evil and turned it around and became the vehicle and the method for the greatest good. That's the redemption and salvation of human life. And I'm so thankful for that. Very thankful. 
As a matter of fact, we could probably say this uh, in a nutshell, can kind of describe a little bit of the answer to the story. I'm gonna encapsulate it from a text from the book of Isaiah. When Isaiah wrote these words, in all their distress, he too was distressed. This is speaking of God and the nation of Israel when they were in slavery. And the angel of his presence saved them. And in his love and mercy, he redeemed them. And he lifted them up and he carried them all the days of old. Isn't that a beautiful statement? In other words, even though they were suffering, God says, I was suffering right with you. And in my love and mercy, I saved you. I redeemed you. And not only that, I lifted you up and I carried you. And you know, I know that little poem footprints many people love that poem you know where there's two footprints and then all of a sudden the person asks the question you know I only see one set of footprints when I walk through the most deepest times in my life where were you God and that's when we find out God was carrying us God was with us in those moments God's word tells us he will never leave us nor forsake us he's always with us though there may be dark nights of the soul where we feel abandoned and we wonder maybe where God is I think we often see the Christmas story through a certain lens. And I jokingly say it's usually the Sunday school lens of little children walking through the nativity scene, struggling through their lines. And we all have a great chuckle about that. And we enjoy it, you know. But I think often it's a very sentimental picture. And I know that many of us, you know, we look at that story and we are very familiar with it. But when you think about it, the God who created the universe could have easily came to the planet and it would have even been a humbling to have been born in a palace. Isn't that the truth? But he wasn't born in a palace. The Bible says he was born in a place where animals were kept. And they laid the baby Jesus in a manger. That's a feeding trough, if you don't know what that is. And so it was a very obscure and a humble beginning. Isn't it amazing that God comes to us in our place of difficulty. I mean, he didn't come as a celebrity. He didn't come as a rock star, if we could say that today. He didn't come that way. He came as an ordinary person living an ordinary life. And I believe that that helps you and I identify with him so much more. So what was the first Christmas like for Joseph and Mary? Because really, that's the time of year we're coming to right now. It's called Advent. And I'm convinced that when we understand the story correctly, it brings tremendous encouragement to us who are living in the 21st century because what we're gonna see in that story is what God does, not only for Mary and Joseph, but he does it for you and for me. God is there for us. And the fact that you could say, well, yeah, but he's gonna love his son. You know, the father's gonna love the son maybe more than me. And I'm gonna say, no, you and I are his sons and daughters if we've come to faith in Christ. He's gonna love us equally. And that's the amazing thing about being a parent. We love our children equally. You know, we don't love one more than another. We just love them maybe differently, but we love them uh, and we value them. And so let us put aside our whimsical image of Christmas and with a little imagination see some of the struggles that Joseph and Mary were walking through those 2,000 years ago. And I think it's a story of one crisis after another. How many here you can say, I can relate to that? I've had moments in my life where I've gone from one crisis to the next. Isn't that the truth? And so we can identify with them. They're gonna go through one crisis after another. But what I'm gonna say to you today is God is there for us in every situation. He's there with us in every crisis in our life. God is not gonna abandon us in the moment of challenge and crisis in our life. Uh, I think we're gonna find out that in every crisis, he's gonna speak into that dilemma. 
And God wants to speak into your problem right now. He wants to speak today to you in your challenge at this very moment. And we could ask the question, has, question, has Christmas really changed that much because there's been crisis then and there was crisis now? We could say, oh yeah, it's no problem to go down the highway here and grab a hotel room, right? But uh, think of that first Christmas. They had to travel by foot. And here's Mary, you know, with child. You know, some of them, you know, we make the assumption they had a donkey. Hopefully they did, but maybe they didn't. Who knows, you know? Bible doesn't say that, does it? Just says they went to Bethlehem. You know, we have a lot of things we add to the story, and pretty soon we make it like it's the Bible. But we're just, let's just take a look at the actual text and see what it's actually teaching us there. We know that the Bible says that they were commanded to go there because they were to take a census. Rome was oppressing the nation of Israel. They were signing up people to take a fresh round of taxes. How many get excited about being inconvenienced while you're nine months pregnant to head down the highway, maybe walking 90 miles or what is that, 150K, you know, to head down to sign up for a new round of taxation? How many be really excited about that? I could just see, you know, bristling with some enthusiasm, right? We'd be a little excited. I notice in Canada, if we feel like we're losing our freedoms, we get a little excited. Isn't that true? Can you imagine these people were living in this context? They were, had been living in this context for a long time now. And there was different responses by different sects of the Jewish population. But Joseph and Mary just followed along, headed down to Bethlehem. How many know it was part of God's plan to move them down there? Because the Bible had taught that the Son of God was going to be born in this little town called Bethlehem. And so God used some very nasty things to move them down the road to fulfill the word of the Lord for their lives. Sometimes God does that with us. So let's take a look here at maybe three areas of crisis that not only that Mary and Joseph experienced in their life, but you and I might experience those same crises at some point in our lives. And the first one is simply relational. And I think the relational crises are by far the most difficult. How many say that's probably true? You know, when you're having problems with people, when you're having problems in your marriage, when you're having problems with a friend, when you're having problems with a family member. There's probably nothing more painful than that. And you know, you know when you're, when you're uh, let's say you're, you're busy, you're enjoying your life, and then all of a sudden your marriage starts falling apart, you know, everything else takes, you know, it just kind of shatters you, and all of a sudden you realize, what have, what have I been doing this whole time, you know? You know, all of a sudden it's hard to go to work. All of a sudden you don't feel like you're functioning correctly. It's very devastating to have those experiences in life. So I'm convinced that relational crisis is the most difficult crisis. Or maybe it's the loss of a loved one. Whatever it might be, these things are challenging. You know, we could have people that were uh, adversarial towards us. And they can sometimes be family members. And sometimes it can be even people that we're the closest to. And there's a tension in our relationship. How many go, that's a crisis. That's tension. That's difficulty. And so Joseph and Mary were experiencing a measure of this tension because even though an angel appeared to Mary, Joseph never got cued in that this was about to happen. He's now wrestling with what's happening in Mary's life as we're about to see. And Matthew records it this way in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His, Mary was pl- his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. How many know this was not the expectation of Jewish people at that time? See, you have to understand something. You and I are living 
uh, in hindsight. You and I are looking in the rearview mirror. It's a lot easier to handle this when you, when you kind of know about how the story turned out. But how about living it and never being cued in that this was what was going to happen? What do you mean, Pastor? Nobody had ever explained to the Jewish people that when the Messiah would come, he would be God himself and it would be a supernatural birth but through the Holy Spirit. Nobody informed them. They didn't know this was going to happen. Now, can you imagine, the most Jewish people thought, oh, the Messiah will be a Jewish person born from a regular, normal family, and he will, God will use this person like he's used other individuals to lead his people and deliver them from their oppressors. That was in their mind. Can you imagine poor Joseph now is being, you know, having to wrestle with what's going on, and God hasn't told him anything. He's in the dark about this situation. It says here, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. See, that tells me Joseph wasn't in on the, on the situation. Can you, can you see the challenge for poor Joseph here a little bit going through his mind? He's kind of wondering, you know, let me go back and say this to us. Yes, they were in a, we would say they were engaged today. But in an arranged marriage in the first century, that's not exactly how it was understood. As a matter of fact, uh, commentator R.T. France basically says, in Jewish law, betrothal, which lasted about one year, was much more than our engagement. It was a binding contract. In other words, they were considered husband and wife. You see, it could only be terminated by death or by divorce. Now, in the first century, you, you know, most of these were not terminated by death. The Jewish people weren't allowed to execute people. That was a prerogative of the Romans. And so that usually it was done by divorce. Here's the other thing he goes on to say. The man, therefore, was already the husband, but the woman remained in her father's house. And so the marriage was consummated or completed when the husband took his betrothed to his home in a public ceremony. So what they normally did was they would go to their home and they would add another room. And when the room was completed, they would go and go get their bride. And that's the image that Jesus gives us about he being the bridegroom and the church being his bride. And now we are waiting for the bridegroom to build onto the father's house so that he can come and secure our union and consummate this relationship, even though we are betrothed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's exactly how John describes it in John 14 when you're reading those passages. That's the image that we have there. This is the situation that Joseph and Mary were in. But now Joseph is wondering in his mind, you know, Mary's been unfaithful. And so here we're living in a shame-honor culture. You and I are not living in that kind of culture, but they're living in a shame-honor culture. This is a great shame in this culture. And so Joseph is now going to be perceived as being, if he doesn't divorce her, he's going to be perceived as being an ungodly person. Big problem for him. But now Mary, because she's in this condition, she's now in a state of shame. How difficult. When she said to the angel, be it unto thee, as you have said, she was willing to accept the shame to become the mother of God. Isn't that amazing? 
that she was willing to do that. See, we don't realize this. You know, we see her as being honored by God, and she was honored by God, but she was going to be vastly misunderstood through her whole life. She would be living in shame. Isn't that sad? And so Joseph now was thinking, you know, because Joseph was a good man. How many can see he was a good man? He didn't want to shame her publicly. He wanted to do this privately. And so we read in the next text um, that God had to speak to Joseph in this situation. And, you know, Joseph, I think, was struggling with what was happening here. As a matter of fact, uh, God had to speak to him. And how many know that often when we're struggling with something in our life, and maybe we're afraid, maybe there's fear in our life, because we're going to read, that's exactly what was going on in Joseph's life. He was afraid to take Mary as his wife. The Bible said that. We'll read it in a moment. But you know what? God many times uh, will not always tell us what we want to hear. Isn't that true? But he's going to tell us what we need to hear. And I think that's important to know that when, when someone really loves us, they're not always going to tell you what you want to hear. If they really love you, they're going to tell you what they, you need to hear because that's helpful to develop and grow. And God spoke to the heart of the issue when he addressed Joseph's fears. Many of our decisions are not based on faith. Too often, I think our decisions are based on fear. You know, we, we don't want to admit that, but we're highly emotional. And when we're afraid, fear is a powerful motivation. And we end up doing things, you know, uh, that we probably shouldn't be doing. And so we read here in Matthew one twenty, he says, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And he said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. Notice I, I emphasize those words because he was about to put her aside because of fear. He says, Take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. How many know that took faith on Joseph's part to believe what was being said to him? It took faith. I want you to know Joseph was a man of faith. Mary was a young woman of faith. These people were a people of faith. God picked these people for a specific reason. They were noted for certain characteristics. You know, Joseph was a good man. He was a man who was obedient to the word of God. He was, a, he was a man that had faith, but he was battling fear. How many know sometimes as people of faith, we battle fear? Isn't that true? Sure we do. Yeah, that's what happens. You know, then he goes on to say, she will give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now, I really think that at the heart of many marital tensions, uh, is really this whole basis of fear. And I'm going to tell you why I believe that. You know, because I, you know, I end up dealing with people and I'm trying to help people in their relationships. And I, sometimes I see that what's, what's happening is people, you know, as human beings, we hurt each other. How many go, that's true. And so then we become afraid. You know, we, we become afraid to trust the person again. They wounded me. They hurt me. Can I trust them? And fear comes into that into that situation. And, and relationships are based on, on two primary things, especially marriage, f- commitment and faith. And when, when that's, you know, th- there's a, a struggle there, then you have people wanting to protect themselves, build barriers, you know, make sure they never get hurt again, pain. We, we want to insulate ourselves. We've been, we've been wounded. We want to shut people out from hurting us again. And we're afraid to be hurt again. And there's a lot of people, that's what they've done. They, you know, rather than forgive, they, you know, they just sh- shut people off. And that's scary. As a matter of fact, I would argue 
that one of the secrets to relationships is this idea of forgiveness. You can't have healthy relationships without forgiveness. As a matter of fact, if we pray the Lord's Prayer every day, if you thought about it, you would be praying this petition, this part of the petition in that prayer is, Father, forgive us our trespasses. So what are we doing when we say that? Actually, I think it'd be good if we prayed that prayer daily. I'll tell you why, because it reminds me that I'm a sinner. Forgive us our trespasses. I sin against other people, right? All of us in this room, we can't walk around saying, oh, we, we never sinned against people. We do. And then the next part of that verse says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Oh, my goodness. You know, we want forgiveness in our lives, but when we've been wounded and hurt and fearful, we're not always so quick to forgive others. Isn't that true? And we really need to forgive others because forgiveness is the key to maintaining human relationships with other people. And I think at this moment in time, I think we need to practice a lot of forgiveness. Amen? I think we need to be far more forgiving, far more understanding, far more loving. Uh, and I think we need to obey what God's word says. Uh, I, I'm just talking about why do we get stuck. And I think we get stuck in our relationships because what we're focusing in on is our personal pain. How many say that's probably true? And really, that's a focus on ourselves. I try to help people. You've got to focus off yourself. You know, the Christian life is really a call to focus away from yourself. The more I focus on myself, the more problems I start having. And the more I can focus off myself and to, to the other person, the better off I'm going to be. How many know that's the truth? Yeah, we have to learn how to do that. I love that prayer of St. Francis. He says, help me not so much to be understood as to understand. Help me so, not so much to uh, receive love as to love. You see, it's, it's, in, it's in giving that we receive. We have to learn that in our lives. That's part of maturity. That's part of growing up. That's part of how we gotta develop as a person. And uh, I think God is gonna always challenge us, just like he did Joseph, to do the right thing. And you only do the right thing is when you're focusing on what God's telling you to do. And in spite of your fears, you obey God's word. And that's an act of faith. And the moment we do that, something beautiful starts to happen. You know, could you imagine, somebody said, could you imagine if Joseph had divorced Mary? She'd have been a single mom. And that's true, you know. So let's, let's give a little bit of credit to both Mary and to Joseph. They did an amazing thing, and they were not prepared for this. They were younger people, and they were not prepared for the kind of life uh, situation that was thrown at them. And I'm gonna say this, for many of us in this room, we're not always prepared for the things that are thrown at us. How many say that's true, pastor? I feel overwhelmed, I feel like I'm drowning sometimes. Amen, don't you feel that way? But I wanna declare the good news, if you and I will not give in to our fears and embrace God's word and begin to act on it instead, I believe we're gonna have victory in our lives and I think that's so critical. I love the story by Garrison Keller who tells a uh, kind of a fictitious story of woe-begone boy. And it's a story of a young man that moves from Minnesota to New York City and eventually enters into a relationship with this young woman. And so this young man named John calls home and he tells his parents something that his girlfriend said that really has impacted him. This is what he said. Uh, There's no such thing as a successful marriage. There are marriages that give up and that marriages that keep on trying. That's the only difference. That's a very profound thought if you think about it. What is Keller telling us? 
The difference is commitment. And, you know, this is something that we struggle with. And yes, I understand. I mean, I've been a pastor a long time. I know it takes two to make a marriage work. I get all of that. But having said that, commitment is such a powerful commodity in a relationship. And we need to understand that. As a matter of fact, uh, some of you who like Philip Yancey uh, wrote a number of years ago at, at his 25th wedding anniversary. He was kind of evaluating his marriage at 25 years. And then he wrote a little article about it in his reflections. And he said, you know, before marriage, often uh, each person, the young man or the young woman, they're trying to take an interest in the other person's interest. You know, often the young woman is trying to look appealing and taking an interest in whatever uh, this uh, person is involved in, uh, young man. And then same thing with the young man. He takes an interest in what the young woman's interested in. But once they get married, it's interesting how often there's a regression. People move away from that. You know, all of a sudden the conversations dissipate. We start battling. There becomes a tension of the will, he says. Um, He says, each resists bending to the other's will. So there's a little conflict. But then he says, after years, though, the process may subtly begin to reverse again. I sense a new willingness to bend back towards what the other wants. Maturely, this time, not out of a desire to catch a mate, but out of a desire to please a man or a woman who has shared a quarter of a century of life. I grieve for those couples who give up before they reach the stage. What's he basically saying? You know, a lot of young people haven't grown up yet. It's about them. But you know what? What really makes a meaningful marriage is when you start living to serve the other person and the other person starts living to serve their spouse. And that, you know, I I said, it's easy to say to somebody, uh, I love you. Can can I tell you what Hollywood is all about and all the love stories? A lot of that's infatuation. I'm, I'm gonna blow the bubble here for you guys. A lot of it's infatuation. You don't really love a person until you know more about them. And the more you know about a person and all of their idiosyncrasies and their faults and all the things that they do that can drive you crazy and you still choose to love them, that's what love is about because love is a choice. And, you know, as you move along through life, that's, you're growing in love. And I think that's powerful stuff. That's a maturing kind of love. And that's what God is calling us to. You know, God loves us in an amazing way. He, he accepts us unconditionally. And that's kind of what God is trying to teach us to do, to learn how to accept people in an unconditional manner. So I believe that one of the issues in relational crisis is to overcome our fears by trusting God and obeying uh, what he is telling us to do. How many say that's true? It It takes courage to overcome our woundedness and our brokenness and our hurts and learn how to forgive and move forward. That takes courage to obey God's word. Let me move on to the second area of crisis, and that's financial. And how many recognize that we are material people, we live in a material realm, and therefore we have material needs? So you can't just live on air, right? And how many say it gets expensive to live on this planet, and especially if you live in certain parts of the world, it gets even more expensive. We recognize that. But here's the caution I wanna make. You know, we need to learn how to put God's kingdom first, And then when we do that, God says, I'll take care of these other things. So he's not suggesting that we don't need material things. God designed it in such a way that we would need these things. And that's all part of us learning how to steward what God brings into our life, learning how to trust him. And and yet how many couples 
struggle over this issue in their lives. It seems to intensify in the Christmas season. And that's because we all have expectations, right? And it can cause a lot of grief. And a lot of marriages have ended because they've been generated by financial pressure. And that, you know, and I'm gonna just say that finances aren't the issue. That's what we think they are. It's an issue of values. When we have a similar value structure about money, because that's part of it. The way you spend money is a reflection of your value system. How many know that? Once you understand that, it changes everything. When you can get on the same page with your value system, it can help you with your relationship in finances. Now, here's what I'm going to also tell you. You know when you have a need, God knows about it, and God cares about it. And we've picked this up in the story here in Matthew's gospel. What happened? Well, after a number of, I think, a year or two, the Magi show up. I know in our nativity sets, I, I have it too, we have the wise guys and the shepherds, and they're all there looking at baby Jesus in the manger. How many know that's true? But that's not exactly what happened. Okay, so I'm gonna burst that bubble right now. I know we make everything seem like this is the way it worked. But the reality uh, is that the Magi were actually traveling because they saw a star. And they've been traveling for a long time, and they finally got to Jerusalem. They didn't see the star anymore. And they went to Herod because they made an assumption. How many know we tend to make assumptions that if this is a, a very noteworthy personality being born, it must be in the, uh, in the palace. And so they show up to Herod's palace, and they say, hey, we saw your star in the sky, and there's a new, noteworthy new birth coming. This is going to be a great leader. Uh, that that kind of, you know, Herod was a very insecure person. He just kind of lost it. And so he wanted to find out who this person was so he could destroy them. Because, by the way, if you study Herod's story, he killed a few of his family members. A uh, very scary person. So they, they were told by the scribes that there was a notable birth and it would happen in the town of Bethlehem of Judah. And so they headed off to the town. But how many know when you get to a town, there's probably 500 to 1,000 people? How do you know which house this person's in, Right. And so the Bible says, and when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. The star reappeared. God was directing them. Isn't that beautiful that God generally uses natural means, but sometimes he'll use even supernatural means. He'll use things to direct our paths. He used the star. And it says here, and on coming to the house, notice it didn't say the inn or the manger or any of those things. They saw the child, not a baby. They saw the child. And we know that this was probably at least one and a half year old, two year old, because they had told Herod, this is when we saw the star. And so that's why Herod killed all the children, male children, two years and under. So he, they were looking for a child. When they saw the child with his mother Mary, they bowed down and worshiped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, of incense, and of myrrh. And you know, one of the things I wrote in my notes here is I said, worship is costly. It does cost us something. You see, you and I need to give ourselves to God. And a lot of times we struggle with withholding ourselves and withholding other things in our lives from God. Isn't that true? If we really love God, we should be serving God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, right? That means with everything. Everything belongs to him. You know, that's how I see my life. I don't own a thing. I'm stewarding everything that God's brought into my life. And I'm going to have an accountability to him for how I steward that. Then it goes on here, um, and they, they gave him the gifts. You know what I love? That what Matthew Henry says it this way. He says, providence 
which is another nice word for God, sent this for a seasonable relief to Joseph and Mary in their poor condition. You know, God could have had Jesus born with people that were, didn't have financial pressure, but he put them in an ordinary situation where normal people do struggle financially. That's kind of the normal. There's a lot of people that maybe don't, but there's a, more people that do. And so God knew that Herod was gonna rise up and try to destroy Jesus. So he made a provision, a financial provision for Joseph and Mary to be able to take Jesus out of the country. Isn't that beautiful? Can I just say this? God will meet your financial needs. Isn't that great? I love that about God. And I can, I can testify. You know, I've been a Christian now for almost five decades. That's a little while. And I can say this, God has always been faithful. God has always been faithful. God, the Bible says, will deliver us from all our troubles. So if you've been walking with God for a long time, I could, I could talk to any older saint here and say, has God been faithful? You know what they'll say? Absolutely. God's faithful. God is faithful. And I want to encourage you, you know, you don't have to panic. And when you're younger, sometimes you do. You know, you can go through challenges in your life, financial pressures, and you go, oh my goodness, uh, I don't know how we're going to make it. But the problem with many of us is we don't realize what we already have. And that's the truth. I remember reading the story of a young man uh, his name was Danny Simpson, and he, you know, he, he, in 1990, he robbed a bank in Ottawa. And so he robs this bank, and he steals six grand, but he gets caught, and he ends up spending six years in prison. Now, you know what the irony of the story is? When he walked into the bank, he, it was an armed robbery. He had a, he had a Colt uh, 45 with him, a semi-automatic, but it turned out that it was manufactured by the Ross Rifle Company in 1918, and it was an antique. And it was valued in 1990 at $100,000. So here he is robbing the bank for six grand with a $100,000 gun. He has no idea what he has in his possession. Now, how many were kind of laughing at that, right? We're going, man, if he only knew what he had, he wouldn't have done that. But folks, can I just say something in a, in a very crazy sort of way. Don't we kind of do that too? We actually have access to our heavenly father who has all the resources in eternity at our disposal. And yet we walk around acting like we need the six grand when God says, I got, I got a hundred thousand here for you. Do you know what I mean? What, why I'm saying is what we need, God's going to provide. He's not, he's going to be there for us. God is very, very faithful. But so often the problem in our life is we think that things are what's gonna make us happy. And so we get caught up into the commercialized, advertised value system of our society, and then rather than living within our means, sometimes we start being tempted to live above our means. How many go, that's so true. And rather than living within our means and maybe living a simpler life, and by the way, living a simpler life has some advantages. Let me give you some of them. Everything you own, you gotta take care of, and pretty soon you become their servant rather than them become your servant. And we forget that. Isn't that true? And the more things you possess, the more they possess you. That's the tragedy. And we don't see it at the time. And so a lot of young people get into all kinds of debt trying to get, you know, what it took their parents 35 years to acquire. They all buy it in the first year and have this huge debt. And it's, it's, it's terrible because it's like a huge gorilla on your back and the pressure is so great. It's so sad when that's not what God is calling us to do. 
I really believe with all of my heart that contentment has nothing to do with things. Contentment is a state of being within us. As a matter of fact, Paul the Apostle tells us the secret of contentment. I love these verses. It's found in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11, 12, and 13. This is the context. Paul says, I've learned in whatever state I've been in, whether to have much or little, I've learned to be content. I've learned the secret, he said, of contentment. And you go, well, what's the secret of contentment, Paul? Because you've, been th- you've had times where you've had much, and there's times when you've had little. What's the secret of contentment? Verse 13, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. Christ is my source of contentment. Isn't that beautiful? And so you and I need to come to Christ. And you know, here's how I look at God. Here's how I, I, I now look at it. Because I've had moments where I've been grumpy and I've been complaining to God because I didn't have something. And I tell you that crazy story. I'm, on vac- I'm in Vancouver on vacation complaining about what I don't have. I'm on vacation in Vancouver at the beach, Ambleside, beautiful beach. You know, and God's probably up there going, what's this kid talking about? What's he complaining about? Look what I'm blessing him with here. And I'm, God had a little conversation with me that, that afternoon from the word of God. I was reading my Bible, good thing. You know, God can really speak to you in that Bible and really straighten you out in a hurry. And I came away with a certain concept and it, it kind of went like this. If I need it, I'll have it. And if I don't need it, I don't want it. I don't need it. If I don't have it, I don't need it. And if I need it, I know who's going to provide it, my Heavenly Father. It's amazing how faithful God is. Well, let me move on here to the last point. We, We talked about these things. Third one is the circumstantial pressures. Now, how many here say, you know, living day to day, there's always pressure? And sometimes there's a lot of pressure. And some of you are experiencing tremendous pressure right now. Uh, there's always twists and turns, and there's things beyond our ability and resource. Anybody facing a few challenges at this present moment? Anybody facing any challenges whatsoever? Of course, we all have those, right? I call them circumstantial pressures. Uh, and the great secret, again, another great secret of the Christian life is a life of continued dependency upon God. I think, it, I think God likes it when you and I every single day recognize that without him we have nothing and that we are spiritually poor and that to face the day, this is how I think, before I want to leave my house, I want to spend time with God because I know if I'm in the word of God, spending time with God, that he's going to drop stuff in my spirit and my soul. He's going to feed me his word. He's going to give me ideas and thoughts. And I've discovered over the years that many of the things that I took out of my house were the very things I needed to handle the day with. I needed those ideas. I needed those promises. I needed those principles. I needed that understanding because I was being confronted with something during the day and I went, wow, this is how I'm gonna apply this situation because God gave it to me before I needed it. Isn't that beautiful? So that's an idea of living in dependency upon God. In Joseph and Mary's case, we find that they're on this long journey and there's an expectant young wife and they're away from home and they get you know, to Bethlehem and the Bible says there's no room for them in the inn. <clears throat> now that word is a very interesting word. They can talk about inns as the place where they, uh, people can stay. 
But I was just listening to a guy talk about six things he didn't know about Joseph. And one of the things he brought out is you can end up in Bethlehem. They, you know, Joseph must have had some distant relatives there because he, his lineage was from Bethlehem. But there was a lot of other people being sent to Bethlehem too. So the places were really filling up. And people had small little houses with maybe an extra room, maybe not. They're all crunched in. Sometimes they're rolling beds on the floor. But like I've seen in India... Many of these poor families, they have their animals, they bring them inside their houses and they have a special room just for the animal inside the same house. Can you imagine? And that's true today. Uh, When I go to India, most of the houses have dirt floors, they're thatched, uh, and there's a, you know, part of the house is devoted so that they bring in the cows at night and everything that they own, the animals, livestock, into the house. How many think that's pretty intense? I wouldn't say it's the cleanest country in the world, okay? Well, so you, you're, you're, your minds are just kind of, you really can't, you, until you've seen this, it, it just blows you away. Not, not everybody does that there. Not every, some people have a little bit more and they don't have their animals in their houses, but a lot of people do. Now, there was no room for them in the, in the space where most of the people were. Joseph and Mary actually were where the animals were. And that's why we read they laid Jesus in the feeding trough, in the manger, where, where the animals ate from. Can you imagine? Isn't that, does that give you an idea? You know, so I, I never hear too many prosperity pe- teachers talk about where Jesus had to lay his head when he was born into the world. He certainly didn't show up in a palace, did he? He ended up in the feeding trough, you know, with a little bit of hay there, and they put him down there. So, <clears throat> I, but I'm also wondering in my mind about Mary and Joseph. You know, she's away from most of her family. And, you know, having the first child, all the things that are going through her mind. Yes, an angel appeared to her. Yes, Joseph had that reassurance. This was from the Holy Spirit. But isn't it amazing that on the night in which Jesus was born, angels showed up, spoke to shepherds. Shepherds came and found the baby lying in a manger. Listen to how Luke says it. Uh, So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby was lying in a manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told about this child. Because let's face it, the angels gave a tremendous glowing report. This is the Messiah, basically. And all who heard it were amazed what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured these things and pondered them in her heart. These, These were encouraging things. And when you're going through a trial and a difficulty and, you know, you feel alone and you are questioning God's promises because I'm going to say this, many times God tells you he's going to do this and then you go through the testing and then you start questioning what God told you. Anybody have that experience? Yes, we all do. Listen, what happened? So I gave you three things here that encouraged them. Number one, God sent strangers to speak a word of encouragement in a difficult and painful time. Has God ever done that for you? Where somebody you didn't even know spoke into your life, just said exactly what you needed to hear. God sent that person to say those things. Then also God gave Joseph another dream, warning of the danger to, jo- to Jesus' life. Isn't that amazing? God never stops guiding our lives. He will continue to guide us until the day we're with him. And I love that. And he protected Jesus. God sent wise men to supply provisions for the relocation necessary for a foreign country. You know, God, if he wants to move you on, he can make the provision for it. Isn't that that wonderful? 
So God is there in the story. We see it everywhere. Uh, why does God do all of this? We say, well, yeah, well, that's, that's Jesus. He's going to obviously do that for Jesus, Pastor. <clears throat> but I'm, I want to just say that God is going to do that because he loves us. And he loves every one of us. And I think one of the great issues in all of our lives is we've got to come to that place where we settle that issue once and for all in our heart, that God is good and God is loving, and that he loves you and me. He loves humanity. That's why Christ came. As a matter of fact, I like what the book of Revelation says, to him who loves us, to him, who's that? God, to God who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom of priests and to serve his God and Father. To him be glory, power, forever and ever, amen. So I wrote down here my conclusion really simply. Human love is determined by the object of love. We're either attracted to the person or we, they're good to us. Some, something about that person attracts us to them. And we, we love them. They're lovable. It's easy to love them. But you know, God doesn't love us because we're lovable. God already knows about us. He knows we're broken. He knows we're sinners. He knows that we've sinned against him and against ourselves and against others. God knows all about that. He loves us. Why? He loves us because he's love. Isn't that amazing? It's not about, see, a lot of times we go, if I, if I was just better, God would love me more. No. God loves you because he himself is love. It's not about the object. It's because he possesses love and has de determined to love us in spite of ourselves. How many think it's amazing that God loves me? That God loves you? Don't you, don't you ever say, I'm amazed, God, that you love me. Not because of anything I've ever done. Not because of anything I'll ever do. God loves us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. You know, the, to receive God's love, to grasp this truth that God loves us. You know what that'll do? That'll change you. And so I'm going to have a stand this morning as we come to a close in the service and just remind us, you know, how God is with us in every crisis. Think about it. You know, God is with us in our relational pressures. Some of you are battling that right now. You have tensions with people. I want you to know God is with you in your tension. God is with you in that relational pressure. And I want to encourage you to walk in forgiveness. I want to encourage you to walk in grace and to walk in love. Amen? I want you to encourage you to do that. Maybe you're in financial pressure. I want to declare to you today, God can meet your needs. God is a God who can meet your needs. Matter of fact, Paul says, he shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. It's beautiful. I, I, can, I can tell you story after story in our lives. You know, being a pastor, you know, if you want to make money, don't be a pastor. There's other jobs, you'll make more money. But I'll tell you something, I've never gone without. I've never lacked. God has always provided. He's amazing. I'd say to Patty, you know, why are we so blessed? You've been so faithful to us, God. You've been so good. You know, I can look back and I, I look back now and I say, I would say to everybody, whatever God asks you to do, do it. Whatever God tells you to do, do it with all of your heart. He'll take care of you. He's amazing. He's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Maybe you're here today. There's all kinds of other pressures in your life. I want you to know God wants you to trust him. And you can trust him because he's loving and he's good. 
with every head bowed right now, how many here you say, you know, Pastor, I struggle with this idea that God loves me. I struggle with that. I want you to raise your hand. I want to pray for you tonight, to this morning, sorry. I want to pray for you. You struggle with that. That's good. Lift your hand. Just say, yeah. I want to pray that, that God will reveal himself to you today that no matter what you've done, no matter how you feel about yourself, God loves you. I want that revelation to sink deep in your heart. That's the prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesians. I want that to be yours today. How many here say, you know, I'm struggling with, you know, relational pressures in my life right now, Pastor, or financial pressures in my life right now, or another pressure in my life right now. And maybe fear is what's moving you right now. I want to I pray that faith would arise in your heart and know God's loving goodness to you. He's going to meet you there. He's going to meet you there. So, Father, I thank you today that your love would just permeate every heart that's hearing my voice right now, that your love would just penetrate the unbelief. I pray that your love would penetrate the fact that maybe they, they, they have a, they're insecure, there's a diminishment in their soul, they don't feel lovable, they don't feel they're worthy of it. Father, none of us are worthy of it. I thank you that you are the lover of humanity. You created us. You love us with an everlasting love and you've demonstrated it to us by coming to this planet and living such a challenging, ordinary life. You've demonstrated it by dying on the cross. So Lord, reveal that love to every heart that feels unloved, to every heart that feels and questions their worth for your love. Lord, you love them. Make that real to them today. I pray for everyone that's in crisis right now, Lord. I pray that we'll not allow fear to, to dictate how we're going to behave, but we're going to walk in faith. We're going to walk in obedience to your word. And we thank you for that, Father. We're going to choose to forgive. We're going to choose to trust you, God. We're going to choose that you can restore our broken relationships. We're going to choose to believe that you have something greater in store than what currently is happening in our life. That we're going to pass through this season. That we're going to be able to testify like King David. That you have delivered us from all our troubles, Lord. I believe you're going to do that, Father, because your word declares that, and we're going to believe it today because you're a good God. You're a loving God. You're a kind Father. Help us not to surrender to our fears, but to walk in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.